Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 25. We're going to read, starting at verse 15 of 24, but then through verse 9 of chapter 25. Um, This is a beautiful section of God's Word, which I think is exceedingly relevant um, to us in our day. But we have to read it carefully because we do live in a different age. The people of Israel in those days, in Moses' time, they were the people of God. They were the church of that age. But they were in a different age because they were looking forward, right? And so there were some distinct differences between how they worshipped, how they were called to worship, and how we are called to worship. But I think if we consider this text carefully in the light of those differences, it has some beautiful lessons for our worship, for our approach to God, for our relationship with Him. So starting at verse 15 of chapter 24, we read, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, Soil or oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Amen. <clears throat> Congregation of God beloved in Christ. It is not about the place, it is about God. It is not about the place, it is about the gospel. It is not about the place, but it is about the worship to which God's people are called. That's what we need to emphasize up front when we consider the tabernacle or the temple which came after it. Because there is a temptation when we read these passages to equate Israel's tabernacle or the temple with our modern church buildings. And to equate the two is invalid. Remember, the church, or the Israel is the church of old. The church is the new Israel. But as I said, there's differences because of the different ages in which we live. They looked forward, awaiting the fulfillment of all that had been promised. We look both backward at the fulfillment Jesus accomplished and forward at the complete unveiling of all that he has done, right? They worshipped in a way that put images 
as the primary means of teaching with proclamation coming second. Whereas for us, proclamation is primary and images are secondary. Their worship was centralized, focused around a place that was set apart by God. Whereas our worship is dispersed to wherever God has gathered his people. Israel and the church are one, and yet they are distinct because they stand at different times, because they stand at, on opposite sides of the cross and the Great Commission. So when we look at the tabernacle, we need to remember that the point is not the structure. As though God wants us today to build a tabernacle for ourselves, for our worship. The point instead lies in the messages which the tabernacle and its furniture were meant to convey to the people of God. Now our text for today is the introductory text. From here through chapter 31, God is going to explain to Moses so that Moses can explain to the people exactly how they are to construct the tabernacle and all of the furnishings and all of the courtyard and everything associated with it. And we're going to skip that section. Not because it's not relevant. As a matter of fact, I think it has some amazing messages for us. But because we're going through all of Exodus, and that would extend our sermon series to approximately three years, we're going to skip that for now. There might be a time we could come back to that and do a, a series just on that. But for now, we're going to look at the introductory section, and then next time we're going to um, go to right beyond that. But I think there's a, an important lesson in the way God prepares Moses to receive that instruction. Because as he does so, he shows Moses that really all of this instruction and all of the construction of the tabernacle is not really about a building project. It's about worship. It's about the gospel. It's about the relationship between Israel and the God who has called and set them apart. And so that's what we see this morning, that our holy God directs the construction of a holy place for worship. And as we consider how our God directs the construction of a holy place for worship, we're going to focus, again, not on the construction, but on the direction and on the people who are directed and on the worship to which they are called. And that begins with how God seeks generous provision from devoted disciples. As we see that, we recognize Moses receives this on Mount Sinai. Recognize that. Last time we saw how God had gathered the people together, caused them to hear the words of his law, which was the word of the covenant. They affirmed that. And so then God showed them what he would do for them by setting forth first the, the sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin, and then the sacrifices that showed fellowship. He dined with them. He caused 70 of their elders to come into his presence to dine with them, showing the benefits of the covenant, and then calling Moses into his presence. What's he do? He instructs him on worship. That's a pattern. Back in chapter 20, he had brought them through the wilderness. He drew them near. He spoke to them the words of the covenant. They affirmed their commitment to him. And immediately, what did he do? He instructed them on worship. 
That's a pattern. Every time God's people are drawn before him and taught who he is and they affirm their faith, he speaks to them of worship. There's a priority there. Worship is crucial. It's to stand at the heart of the identity and purpose of the people of God. And now now God's going to explain to Israel through Moses what their worship must involve, what it must look like. Starting in this chapter and extending for pages, God is going to explain to Moses how the tabernacle is to be constructed, what its furnishings are to be and all of their details, how the priests are to be clothed, how they are to go about the the business of leading Israel in worship. In all of that, Moses will be carefully instructed. It's going to be a, a massive project requiring significant resources. Look at, look at the resources that he calls them to donate. In, starting in verse 3, there are metals, precious gold, silver, bronze. There are dyes. The, the word yarn, in some translations, uh, I think it's threads, that's, that's added. The, the focus is on the dye because the dye was really hard to get. It was really expensive. Blue and purple and scarlet. Then come the fabrics, expensive linen, more common goat hair fabric, various kinds of leathers. Then we come to wood, acacia wood, which was a fine wood found out in the wilderness, but that required a lot of work. Then we come to the oil and the spices and the precious stones, including onyx. This list is expensive and extensive. But the emphasis, you will notice, is not upon the stuff. The emphasis we see right up front is on the giving of the stuff. None of it was to be a mandatory contribution. God is not instructing Moses to impose a tax upon the people. He's not calling Moses to confiscate these materials from whoever might have them. Instead, Moses is to solicit these materials as a contribution, as a gift. Verse 2, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. It's to be entirely voluntary. It's to come from the heart. You see, that's what God consistently expects of his people. In Deuteronomy 16, instructing them of their worship, God says that they should not appear before him empty-handed. But he also tells them that what they bring, they ought to bring freely. They ought to bring out of the overflow of their hearts, out of gratitude. A beautiful example of that is found in First uh, Chronicles 29. David coming to the end of his reign. He's preparing for his son Solomon to build a temple that will replace the tabernacle. And standing before the people, he sets an example. He tells them of, of all the treasure that he has amassed and all the supplies that he is giving for the construction of the temple. And they respond freely. He doesn't lay any obligation on them at all. But freely they come And they multiply what he has given, demonstrating their faith. In fact, David's response is to praise God that he has put it on the heart of his people to love him that much, to be that devoted to him. And the same is true in the New Testament. In uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the apostle lays before the people the, the opportunity they have, the opportunity to support 
those of their brothers and sisters who are going through a famine, who are having a hard time, who are experiencing lack, and he calls on them out of their abundance to provide for them, but not, again, as an obligation, not as a tax, but out of their hearts. He says to them, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see, God isn't reliant upon his people's personal wealth. Psalm 50 reminds us. He is unthinkably rich. He tells them there, I don't need your sacrifices. I own the cattle on a thousand hills, all the, all the animals of the woodlands, all the livestock of the field. It's all mine. In fact, he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. There is nothing that doesn't belong to God. If he wanted to, he could have directed Moses to a cache that, involved, that included all of the elements needed for the construction of this tabernacle. But he wants his people to give freely. Why? Because when they give, when they contribute they demonstrate their trust that God who has given them all of this is able to continue to supply their need. He wants them to show their love. That God means more to them than their wealth. God means more to them than their stuff. God means more to them than the plunder they took from the Egyptians. He wants them to demonstrate that there is no priority in their life that is greater than God. And therefore they will give not only their bronze but also their gold. They will give not only their common dyes but their exceptional dyes. They will give not only wood but also precious stones. It is not the gift that delights the Lord, but the willingness of the giver. And that holds true today. God calls us to contribute for the sake of his worship. Now certainly that involves our tithes and our giving beyond that. Jesus condemned the Pharisees not because they tithed, but because they only tithed. He said you should have done that or you should not have left that undone but you should also have added love and mercy, right? See, we are to contribute in that way, but that's not our main contribution. God wants us to give all toward his worship. He wants us to give our time. That's why he gave us the Sabbath command, so that one whole day out of every week, we demonstrate that God is so important to us, we'll set aside all of our work and all of our labors and all of our striving and all of our joy and, or enjoyment, all of our uh, pastimes, our hobbies, and we'll focus on Him, on what He wants rather than what we want, on what delights Him rather than what excites us. He wants us to give Him our time and our attention. He doesn't want us to just warm a pew he wants us to focus on His Word and on His praise and on His people. He wants us to give our energy, our excitement. He, again, He doesn't want us to just warm a pew. He wants us to, to 
worship him with heart and soul, mind and strength. Not just moving our lips or standing there holding a songbook, but singing from the heart, confessing the truth that we truly believe and hold firm. And then gathering with God's people to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who celebrate. He wants us to pour out everything for Him. He wants us to give our skill, singing to the best of our ability, teaching those who are young in the faith, comforting those who are brought low. He wants us to give of our enthusiasm, of our joy, of our love. You see, God wants us to give ourselves just as he desired from Israel of old. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contributions for me. That's what he wants of us, our hearts to so move us that we give ourselves. Back in our text, having called Moses to solicit contributions for the sanctuary... God now tells Moses to lead the people in building. Moses is to instruct the people to act, making the things that God would describe to him, preparing for the worship of which God alone is worthy. But they must not do it, he says, haphazardly. They must be very intentional in their building, doing precisely what God has instructed. And that brings our second point. Not only is their worship to be a, a, a worship that, um, that comes from their heart, that reflects their devotion, but it's also to demonstrate their submission. The worship requires careful preparation by submissive servants. It was important that they build obediently because of what the tabernacle was. Look at verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. A sanctuary, that word that we use to translate mikdash, the Hebrew word mikdash, uh, comes from the Latin sanctus, which means holy. Something holy is set apart. It is reserved for God and for God alone. This was not a, a building project that they could use later in the week for you know family gatherings. It wasn't that, right? It was place where God himself would cause his presence to dwell. He would not be to them a God only in concept, just an academic idea of deity. No, Israel would be able to approach his very presence. He would be to them Emmanuel, God with us. And therefore they must build the the tabernacle precisely recognizing that God would dwell in their midst through it. So it is for the true Israel today, not because of our building. See, this building is not a tabernacle. This building is just a building. It's a blessing to us. It's wonderful to have a beautiful place where we can worship that is well-suited for our activities on the Lord's Day. But if it was destroyed tomorrow, we could gather in Marv's garage Right? We could gather in any one of the equipment sheds owned by our people or in an open field, and our worship would be just as holy and just as pleasing to God because this is just a building. See, back then, the Holy Spirit had not been poured out. And so if God was to dwell among them, 
There must be a place set apart where they could see that he was in their midst. But when Jesus came and completed his work, something changed. Now, instead of worshiping in a structure or at a structure in which God dwelt, now that structure, now that tabernacle is us. 2 Corinthians 6 says, We are the temple of the living God. For God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Ephesians 2 at the end of the chapter says that we are being built together as a living temple in which Christ is the chief cornerstone in which the Holy Spirit himself dwells. So we have become the tabernacle and we must worship him accordingly. Now, of course, it was different for the people of old Israel. They still looked forward. The Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out to dwell within them. And therefore, at this point in history, they needed the tabernacle. They needed that place in which God would dwell. And so how important it was, how essential, that that tabernacle be built not according to the imaginations of men, not according to the ideas of unbelievers, but instead according to, precisely according to, what God revealed through Moses. Kids, do you understand why the tabernacle was so very important and so very unique? There were at least three reasons. There were at least three unique aspects of this structure. It was unique, first of all, because as the dwelling place of God, it was intended to be an image of heaven. God wanted his people to eagerly anticipate the blessing of communion with him. And therefore, he designed the tabernacle to reveal the glory of his presence. Not the glory of man, not the glory of man's ideas, but the glory of heaven and the one who dwells in its midst. And therefore, everything in the tabernacle would point to the glory of heaven, the beautiful shine and luster of the precious metals that composed its furniture, the excellent skill of the wood that was carved to make its parts and pieces, the blinding whiteness of the linen fabric, the skillfully rendered images of the cherubim, all of it, every detail was meant to be otherworldly and to point to heaven. And in fact, when we read in Revelation 4 and 5, John's experience of heaven, we see so many echoes of the tabernacle, which was meant to reflect exactly that. As God's people looked upon the tabernacle, now they looked upon mostly the outside of it, Right? But then they heard from the priests what was inside. It was meant to cause them to crave the opportunity to go in fully into God's presence. And so surely if it was meant to be an image of heaven, every detail had to be correct. Every detail had to follow the instruction of God who alone had been there. So the tabernacle was to be an image of heaven. It was also meant to be a proclamation of the gospel. Every aspect, every piece of furniture, every stitch of clothing, every sacrifice and rite was meant to point Israel to Jesus Christ. Think of it. Kids, many of you have learned about 
the tabernacle or the temple in your schooling? What was there? There's an altar. First thing you encounter, right? What's that altar show? It shows that you can't approach God without someone dying on your behalf and being utterly destroyed. That's the altar, right? As it consumes the sacrifices placed on it, its sides covered with dried-on blood, demonstrating the cost of redemption, of salvation. Near it was the bronze laver, the bronze sea, which was used to cleanse the priests and also to cleanse the sacrifices, demonstrating that anything that comes near to God, whether the priest who brings the sacrifice or the sacrifice that atones for sin, must be absolutely holy, cleansed from all the defilement of sin. Then there's the table of showbread, revealing to the people of God that every bit of of prosperity they have, every supply, every provision, God sends them. The lampstand, revealing the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit to give light so that we might see the Lord and the things of the Lord. The altar of incense, revealing not just the prayers of the people, but the prayers of the priest, the intercessor, who stands before the presence of God, interceding for the good of the people, and then the most holy place, hidden behind a veil, the throne room of God, access to which was not available to any but the high priest and then only in a carefully specified way demonstrating that something needed to happen, that someone needed to come in order to give them access into the presence of God. All of that, including countless other details like the clothing of the priests and the the formulation of the incense, all of that was meant to point them to Christ and therefore it was essential that all of it be formed accurately because there can be no freelancing when it comes to the gospel. Right? We are not free to formulate the gospel however we want it. And the chief preaching that they received at that age was to look upon that tabernacle. And so it must be absolutely carefully, submissively ordered according to God's command. It was to be an image of heaven, it was to be a proclamation of the gospel, and it was to be an opportunity to honor God. See, man was created to worship God. That's why the Lord designed us to reflect His image. That's why He designed the creation to proclaim His existence. Man was designed and made to worship God. And the worship that most honors Him is the worship that He Himself has commanded. Israel would very soon learn God does not tolerate worship that He has not commanded. Two of Aaron's sons, in fact, the two who had gone up on the mountain with him, decided that they would offer worship that God had not commanded. And in response, fire came out from the presence of God and consumed them. Our God is holy. And therefore, he demands that we honor him by bringing worship that is holy, not worship that is common, that is like that of the unbelievers, that is, that is or, ordered by our own arrangement and imagination. You see, the way we approach God reflects what we think of Him. Young people, I want you to think of this. The way we worship God reflects our attitude toward Him. So much of the church, and we're tempted by this, we can't just look down on others. So much of the church, we we hear this desire for what satisfies me, what makes me feel 
feel uplifted, encouraged, inspired. What's that say your priority is? Me. My feelings, my satisfaction, my desire. If man orders his worship according to his own desires, where is the priority? It's on me. It's not on God. God is secondary. God is my servant. And so the Lord said, you must not order the tabernacle according to your desires, your aesthetic, your pleasure. But if we worship God and we insist on worship that is only as He has commanded, that includes only that which He has set forth, then we're saying that the priority is on God. If we are built up, inspired, interested, that's secondary, that's nice. And frankly, if we order our worship as God has commanded, it will build us up and strengthen us and invigorate us. But that's not primary. What's primary is that God is honored as the King, that God is honored as the Savior, that God is honored as the Creator and as our Father. And so God wanted to teach them that from the very start. So he tells Moses, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Now if that was important for Israel, is it not still important for us? Now to be sure, as, as we've seen, our worship differs from the worship of old Israel. No longer are we awaiting the coming of one who would save us from sin and fulfill all of those images. He's come. He's done it all. And no longer is our worship centralized around a particular area. Jesus said in John 4, The hour is coming and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And that would happen not just at Jerusalem, but throughout the world, because God was opening the floodgates. He was sending the gospel to people of every nation. Now that's happened. And so we worship throughout the world. We worship in a celebration of what is complete but we worship according to His command, the God who has done it all. And He calls us to do that eagerly. In Hebrews 10, we, we know this passage. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, understand, Israel of old didn't have that confidence. Only the priest and only in the prescribed way could come into the holy places. But now we're all priests now we're all indwelt with the Spirit. And so we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This privilege we must never take lightly. We must be eager for it, but we must not take it lightly. In Hebrews 12, we're reminded of the fear with which Israel regarded God. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He reminds them, 
it was kind of terrifying to approach God in Israel. Mainly because Jesus had not yet come. But he says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That is our worship. It's a worship of fulfillment. It's a worship of completion. It's a worship of indwelling. And therefore, he urges us, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. What is acceptable? It's as he commands, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, the tabernacle was never, ever, ever about the place. It was about the God who inhabits the place. It was about the gospel that gives access to the place. It was about the worship he desires in that place where God dwells. God wants the worship of his people, a worship given freely by disciples who are devoted to God and to serving him, a worship given carefully by servants who are submissive to the God who has given them everything. That is what he desired of the church of old. That is what he will desire in the new heavens and the new earth. And that is what he desires from us who gather today. So may God, through our worship given freely and devotedly, but also submissively, may God receive all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, when we think of the privilege that is ours to worship you in the beauty of holiness, to worship you as you have commanded through the fulfillment and the reconciliation and the peace and the glory of Christ, to worship you who are with us through the Holy Spirit, we stand in awe. Lord, let us never take lightly this privilege which is ours, but cause us to rejoice constantly, consistently, that you provide what we could never obtain on our own. And may you receive the glory that you so richly deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.